Well, hey, if you would, grab your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 2. If you make your way back, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's Word out in front of them. We're on page 1,159 in those blue hardback Bibles. Uh, We're in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, You're going to need a Bible this morning, so grab a Bible all throughout the room. Maybe you can pull it up on your phone if you've got the Bible app. We're in Ephesians chapter 2. If we haven't met, my name is Dustin. I get to be uh, one of the pastors here, and we are looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 this morning. With that in mind, welcome to the Lord's house, and let's hear from God's holy and inerrant word. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Friends, you should be seated and keep that Bible open as we pray together. Father, this morning we confess that we love you because you first loved us. You laid down your life for us even while we were your enemies. Lord, we thank you that through faith alone we can have salvation. We are justified. We are brought into your family. Father, I ask in the name of Jesus that if anyone in this room does not know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, that they would repent, they would see Christ. Lord, they would know the great love with which you have for them. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we would see the hope that we have, the riches that you see that we are in your inheritance. And Lord, that we would see Christ on high, reigning over all things. Holy Spirit, we need your power to understand the gospel. Holy Spirit, we need you to raise us from the dead and seat us next to Christ. And so Lord, we pray that even now you'd be raising us to those heavenly places to understand and to comprehend the mystery of the gospel now revealed to us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, now what? (laughs) Now what? Uh, That's the question that is on Jean Valjean's mind in uh, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Uh, Anyone ever seen Les Mis? It's It's a novel written by Victor Hugo. It's also a famous musical, and in 2012, it was turned into an Oscar award winning film. And uh, if you know the story, what now is highly, highly on Jean Valjean's mind. Who is Jean Valjean? Does anyone know? He is a prisoner 24601. Your time is up and your parole's... I'm, gonna, I'm not going to sing this. 
I have listened to Les Mis a lot this past week. It is a wonderful story. But if you don't know the story of Les Miserables, Jean Valjean is a prisoner who spent 19 years uh, a prisoner to the law. And after 19 years, he is released and he immediately leaves prison and he goes where? Does anyone know? He ends up at a church where he is welcomed in by the local parson. Now, of course, uh, that night they feed him a, a delicious meal, but that night, Jean Valjean, uh, because he is a thief and he is broken by his sin, in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean famously does what? He steals all of the silver plates and cups from the church, and he runs away. Uh, the next morning, of course, the police find him and they bring him back to the church, and uh, as soon as he's brought back, the guards mock him. And they bring him to the bishop and they say, we've caught him red-handed. And Jean Valjean, this escaped thief uh, who has taken the silver, uh, claims that the bishop had given him the silver, right? And how does the bishop famously respond? He says, that's his right. But my friend, you left so early, you forgot. I gave the silver candlesticks also. Would you leave the best behind? And in one of my favorite scenes in the movie, the parson grabs the silver candlesticks and he makes Jean Valjean, who is in chains, hold the candlesticks. And he says, and I won't sing this, although I'm tempted. <laughs> Remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. In the musical, the bishop goes on to sing at Jean Valjean, God offers you a great gift. Go and find your forgiveness. By the death of Jesus, God is taking you out of the pit. Today, your soul is now God's. If you haven't seen Les Miserables, that's my first application to my sermon. Go and see Les Miserables this afternoon. But friends, what I love so much about this scene is that it's a picture that we are all like Jean Valjean. We are all broken. We are all sinful. We are all rightfully condemned. And yet, by the death of Jesus Christ, you and I are offered redemption, a second chance, God's real grace. I mean, the message of the gospel is none other than prisoners of the law, rightfully condemned, perpetuating the cycle of sin over and over again can actually be set free. Now, of course, Les Mis is simply a film. Uh, it's simply a book. And actually, there's an even better story that it points to. No, you cannot ransom your soul by your good works, nor can you ransom your soul by silver or gold. First Peter tells us this about the good news of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1 says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Friends, this is the heart of the message of the Bible. This is the heart of the message of the gospel, that you and I, we are sinful, we are born into sin, we continue in sin, and yet God loves us. He is like that parson who hands you and I the silver, except he doesn't just give us silver and gold. He gives us the very death of his son, 
who washes us clean. We just sang grace that can pardon and cleanse within. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, you'll know that as we've been going through Ephesians, I've suggested to you, if you were to look down at Ephesians, that Ephesians uh, on a a basic level can be broken down into a simple outline. Chapters one, two, and three are what we're calling the indicatives. What, What is, who is God, who we are. And then in chapters four, five, and six, we are told then what to do about it, how to live like free people. Once you believe Christ, how are then we supposed to live? And if you were here over the last several weeks, you may remember that Rick Boya came and preached uh, to us about how great it is to be a Christian, to know God's forgiveness. Uh, Last week, I suggested to you that it's great also to be a Christian because you and I have real hope in this life. Uh, We don't see just the roads and the mountains of this world. We see beyond into the infinite world of stars and galaxies, so to speak. We don't just see the here and now. We see Christ reigning on high over all things. In fact, if you were to look at Ephesians chapter 1, it is an incredible, incredible chapter. It's basically just three sentences all about how incredible this message of the gospel to sinners is. And then it ends with this incredible statement in verse 22. This is chapter 1, verse 22, that all of this has been given to you and me as a gift. It is given to the church. Now, if you're thinking, Okay, what does that have to do with me? (laughs) Grace, uh, Christ reigning on high, his death, his ascension. What does that have to do with me, though? This message of the gospel, that's great, but how does it actually impact my life today? I mean, this is written 2,000 years ago. What does that have to do with you right now? Well, that's why we need chapter 2 in Ephesians. If you look down in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, This will come as no surprise to anyone who's been here the last few weeks. Guess what? Verses 1 through 10 are also one long sentence, (laughs) just like the first chapter was basically two long sentences. But what Paul does in chapter 2 is he tells us what that means for you and me as individuals, right? If chapter 1 is about how great it is to be loved by God before time began, what it means for you and I to have hope, what it means that Christ ascended and he is in the right, he's on the right hand of God. He's reigning over all things. If that seems so otherworldly and too hard to comprehend, chapter 2 is where Paul brings it back down to what does this mean for you and me. So if you look at chapter 2, it, it breaks down very simply into three sections. Uh, I'm going to give you uh, the, the outline if you want to. It's verses 1 through 3. Uh, The theme is cheer up. Verses four through seven is also the theme, cheer up. And then eight through 10, the theme is now what? So let's go to verses one through three. Uh, And I should sort of qualify my first point if you're following this outline. This is verses one through three. And I would call this cheer up, we're worse than we think. (laughs) Let's read this again. This should be very sobering. And I I steal that from a pastor named Jack Miller who passed away several years ago from cancer, but he used to like to share the gospel by saying a simple message, cheer up, you're worse than you think, and cheer up, you're more loved than you dare imagine. So cheer up, we're worse than we think. Look at verses one through three again. And although that's a um, lighthearted way of speaking about it, friends, what I want to suggest to you is that this section is deadly serious, as serious as hell is eternal. Paul writes to us, bringing it down to our level. This is who we are before Christ. Paul writes, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all 
once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Friends, this is a sobering statement, but this is how the gospel message begins. It's a sobering, honest summary of where we are apart from the love of God. The first thing that Paul tells us right there in verse one is that you and I are dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. This is, if you are not saved, if you have not given your life to Christ, this is a description of who you are. And for every Christian in this room, this was what your life was like before you came to Christ. Paul uses the very sobering word dead in sin and trespasses, dead. Now think about what that word means. What does it mean for someone to be dead? It means that they're unresponsive, right? Uh, If you were to tap on somebody's shoulder who is dead, they could not respond. And so that shows us the helplessness that you and I are in. We're also dead in the sense that we are destined for life apart from God. We are destined for death unless we give our lives to Jesus Christ. You know, and this is not, you know, we may think this is Paul sort of messing with the message of Jesus. You know, this is a a common thing that people like to say. There's Jesus's message, and then there's Paul's message, which he adulterates the message of Christ. But friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Where does Paul get the word dead? Why would Paul use that word? Well, he gets it from Jesus himself. When Jesus in Matthew chapter eight is going around preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, and he calls people to follow him, people give all kinds of excuses for why they don't have to do that today. They give all kinds of excuses why they don't have to respond to Jesus today. And you know what Jesus tells them? He says, go let the dead bury their own dead. If you are unresponsive to the message of Christ, you are spiritually dead, and you are destined for an eternity apart from him. If you do not choose Christ in this life, you will not choose it in the next. You know why? Because eternity is just a continuation of the things we choose today. You know, people think that, you know, somehow their trajectories will change, but friends, that's not how hard hearts work. The, the danger of hardening your heart to the message of Christ is that you can harden it to a point where it will never respond. But of course, if you choose Christ in this life, you will only get more and more of him for eternity. You and I are dead in sin apart from Christ. You know, there's so many ways to, to say this. Probably one of my favorite ways is in a song where uh, the, the, uh, the songwriter wrote, we have a head full of rocks and a heart made of stone. <laughs> I love that. Of course, uh, that deadness of sin, uh, Paul goes on. It gets worse from there, <laughs> right? And he says that you and I, in verse two, it says, we used to live this way, dead in our sins, and we did what? We followed the course of this world. The word course right there means the ways of the world. You know, we set our moral uh, compass by whatever the world says around us right now. Isn't it interesting that as uh, our culture has redefined what morality is, you also have changed your definition of what morality is. Huh, where did you ever get that redefinition of morality? Could it be that you and I are often tempted to just go with the course of this world? Following what? The prince of the power of the air. That's a very Jewish way of describing Satan, the demonic forces. And then it says, that's the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Again, that's very Jewish language. Remember, Paul's ethnically Jewish. And sons of disobedience means people who don't know Christ. And then Paul, what I love so much about Paul is even though Paul was raised around the Bible, raised knowing the Old Testament better than any of us could ever dream, he knows that until he comes to Christ, he is dead 
Notice what Paul says, among whom we all once lived. You know what Paul's saying is he's saying, he's not saying cheer up, you're worse than you think. What Paul is saying is cheer up, we're all worse than we think. Paul says, I was also dead in sin. We all lived in the passions of our flesh. We all live for this world, carrying out the desires of our body and mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. Right there, children of wrath means children deserving wrath, destined for wrath, like the rest of mankind. So how are we supposed to understand this section? Well, Christians throughout the centuries have sort of summarized our spiritual battle and our, and our, our fight against sin in sort of three categories. And so this is very ancient Christian theology, and it's a good summary for us to use in this passage. And you may have heard it before, uh, what uh, Christians have used to describe sin is they'll give us sort of three things to focus on. There's the world, the flesh, and anybody know the third one? The devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So those are the three battles that we fight, right? So what does it mean that you and I, we fight against the, the world? What does that mean? Well, when the Bible often talks about the world, what it means is the world, not like the beautiful planet Earth spinning around in the, you know, you know, universe that's so beautiful. What he means by world is he means the fallen, broken systems of this world that are opposed to God. It is the, the inward bent of all human hearts to choose what they want rather than what God wants, Right? And so, again, if you look, Paul says it this way, it's the course of this world, following the ways of this world. Right? So, uh, you know, sometimes when I talk to people and they talk to me about their struggle with sin, you know, sometimes they'll say, the devil made me do it, right? And I was like, okay, maybe, that, maybe, you know, Satan tempted you, maybe that's happening, you know, that can certainly be the case. But there's also a reality that you and I live in a fallen world. You know, I know many of you have heard me say this before, but, you know, my favorite analogy for this is, uh, you know, have you ever heard the story about the two young fish? These two young male fish are swimming in the ocean, and then this old fish swims past them, and the old fish says what? You know? Hey, fellas, how's the water? And the two fish swim by, and they turn to each other and say, what the heck is water? You know, you and I, we live in a world that is broken by sin. You know, Isaiah says, what are those who call light darkness and darkness light? That's the world that we live in. It's opposed to God. Uh, and, and I could spend the rest of the day proving to you that you and I live in a fallen world. But that's the reality. That's what we're up against. And it was broken because humanity chose to disobey God in the garden. And the point of that story is not only that it's true, it's also that you and I continue to choose to disobey and that's where Paul goes next. It's not just that you and I live in a broken world, we do. It's also that you and I live according to the flesh. Remember, it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. What do we mean by flesh? Well, look down. Paul talks about the flesh right there in verse 3. He says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So what do I mean by we're up against the flesh? Well, the flesh right here is sort of like uh, Martin Luther would probably call it the inward bent of the heart. It's this idea that when given the choice, we often and almost always choose the wrong thing, right? We battle our own temptation and our own word sense that we want to do what we want to do, right? So oftentimes, you know, when people say the devil made me do it, what I want to say is, no, you wanted you to do it. That's why you did it, <laughs> I'm not denying that Satan is real, but you did it because you wanted to do it. 
I mean, that's you know, certainly the case for me. I feel like I'm battling my flesh every day. But notice also, you know, what does it mean to battle the flesh? Think about it this way. Paul does not limit in verse 3. He says, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Did you catch that? You know, when we think about the flesh, you know, we may be thinking Paul's talking about some kind of like physical temptation, like adultery or something. Well, that's certainly part of it, but there's also the mind. Did you catch that? We are tempted to not just sin with our bodies, but we're also tempted to be always focused on our own pride. I mean, what are the sins of the mind? Thinking that we know better than God, thinking that our morality is a higher morality than God's morality, thinking that although Jesus says to do this, I can figure out some other way to do what I want to do. You know, Jonathan Edwards, uh, you know, talking about the flesh, the famous, you know, American theologian, uh, he pointed out, uh, you know, he conceded that, sure, your will, your ability to choose is free. Your problem is that before Christ entered your life, you always willed the wrong thing. <laughs> sure, your will can choose. You have free will. The only problem is that your will is bound by sin. You know, to me, like the, the, the easiest analogy for us when we think about sin is to imagine someone, you know, let's use an easy example. Give me like the most severe addict you could ever imagine, right? Is that person choosing to continue to use? Well, yes. But in another sense, they are controlled by something. Some other force has them, and yet they continue to choose. Friends, that's what sin is. Um, you know, I love the way Tim Keller says it. Not every addiction is sin, but every sin is addicting. We battle the world, we battle our own desires. And then, of course, Paul points out that we are also battling what? You and I live in a world that is not just physical. You and I live in a world that is imbued with the spiritual. You are not just a brain on a stick. You have a soul. <laughs> he said, I have a soul. How did he know? Sorry, I messed up. <laughs> but that's in the song from Les Mis. You have a soul. You're not just a brain on a stick. You exist on some level in the spiritual realm even now. And you and I battle the devil, the spiritual forces at work in our world. Right there, verse two, following the prince of the power of the air, right? Who is that? Satan. The spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. And we were all controlled by that until we repented and turned to Christ. I mean, what's the destiny? Uh, for, for this world, the world in the sense that it's opposed to God. Well, God is a just God. God is going to make all things new. He is going to punish sin. And that includes people who do not follow him. I mean, that's the great hope that we have is that all of the wrongs are righted and justice is done. I mean, if you could, you could look at the last two years and the turmoil in our country, and at its heart, it is a twisted yearning for justice. And yet we all want justice. The scary news is that we are all like the rest of mankind. <laughs> and if God is going to bring justice on this world, you and I are also guilty. We are condemned. I mean, again, you may think this is just Paul messing with the message of the gospel. But, you know, we all know John 3, right? John 3 has one of the most famous verses of all time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But did you know Jesus goes on in chapter 3 to say this? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son 
shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I mean, how does, how does the message of the wrath of God against sin strike you? Um, I can tell you that for a long time, it made me angry. And it made me not want to be a Christian. And it made me hate God. And if that's how you feel, um, friend, I understand. But at the same time, friend, what I would tell you is that's the proof that you have sin in your heart. That's the proof. Does this make you angry? Does this make you resent God? That God is just? That he calls a spade a spade? So what's the good news? Cheer up. You and I are more loved than we dare imagine. Is that where God leaves this broken world? Is that where God leaves you? Is that where God leaves Jean Valjean? A thief who keeps on thieving? No. Uh, you know, pastors are so goofy. They're, they like trip over themselves to come up with new ways to say how cool these next two words are. So I'm not gonna try to compete with them, but just trust me, these next two words are super cool. Look at verse four. But God, in response to our sin, I mean, think about that. When the Bible says the word world, it means the broken, sinful cultures, systems against God. So in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he doesn't mean the beautiful clouds in the sky. What he means is God loved even our broken world and all of its sin. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Friend, hear me. Cheer up. You are more loved than you dare imagine. Those are not throwaway words. I mean, think about how much your mother loves you. Okay? And now expand that by infinity. Friends, the message of the gospel is you are more loved, you are more genuinely loved than you're even dare imagining. <laughs> you know what? I, I love that picture of Jean Valjean in the chains. He is broken by sin and he is continuing to sin, right? That is us. And he has chains on his wrists and the priest gives him the silver candlesticks. <laughs> I mean, it is lavish grace lavish forgiveness. And friends, that's what Paul wants you to see. Paul can't stop talking about all of the mercy and the love of kindness. Listen again, God, who is God? Remember, this is the indicatives. This is who God is. This is who you and I are. There's not even moral commands yet. It's just who is God? What did we learn about God? Verse four, he's rich in mercy. Mercy is kindness, patience in the face of sin. Friend, his mercy is more. We just sang it. He is merciful to you. Why? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Paul doesn't want you to forget. Unless you have come to Christ, you are what? You are dead in your trespasses. And God has made you alive with Christ. Just as the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead by faith, you can be spiritually brought to life by faith in Christ. 
And he goes on in verse six and he says what? That Christ has raised us up and we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Our true identity is kept for us safe in heaven. It's incredible that we share beside Christ in glory. And why are we, what, what do we have to look forward to? Look at verse seven. So that in the coming ages, this is for all of eternity and eternity and eternity. What is eternity gonna be like? In the coming ages, God is going to show you the immeasurable riches of his grace. How much riches, how much kindness does God have? It's immeasurable. It is eternal. <laughs> it is unstoppable. And it's his grace and kindness through Jesus. Friends, you see how much Paul is trying to get you to see and trying to get you to believe that you really are more loved than you dare imagine? You know, oftentimes people get this weird idea and it comes from Greek philosophy and it's not the gospel. And people will believe that God helps those who help themselves. Ever heard that stupid lie from the pit of hell? <laughs> it's not true. God does not help those who can help themselves. If you believe that, you are rejecting Christ and you're refusing his free gift of grace because the truth of the gospel is God helps the helpless. If you think your good works can earn you salvation, you know neither the holiness of God and his unattainable standard and you have an overestimated view of what you think you do. I mean, if you really think that you love your neighbor with all of your heart to the same extent that you and I look to our own efforts, <laughs> as one pastor put it, friend, your moral standard's just too low. <laughs> God helps the helpless. God loves sinners. God loves you. Not the you that you project that other people see, right? Not you with the nice outfit on and your hair done right. Not, not the you that you want your girlfriend or boyfriend to believe that you are. If you're dating someone, trust me, they're not who you think they are. <laughs> dating is a lie. <laughs> Marriage is the truth. <laughs> God sees you for who you are and for who I am, and he still chooses love. Um, I, I know I keep saying it, but it's so true, friend. God is not just a big one of us. He has holy love, real love, love unlike anything your mother could ever touch. She couldn't hold a candle to the way that God loves you. Now, what I want you to see also in the message of the gospel, and this is something that Sinclair Ferguson, a, a Scottish preacher, pointed out in his commentary on Ephesians, and it's so, so beautifully profound, uh, but it's at the heart of the message. And that is, as you think about Christ taking the punishment of our sin on the cross, dying the death that you and I deserved, appeasing the wrath of God, taking the wrath of God so you don't have to experience the wrath of God. Sinclair Ferguson points out that it's important for you and I to recognize that God does not love us because Jesus died for us. God does not love you because Jesus died for you. Ferguson points out, Jesus died for you because he loves you. Did you catch that? God loves you. He loves you. And he proved it by dying on a cross for you. By faith, you and I are brought into the life of the Trinity. 
What does John 3.16 say about the love of the Father? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has for us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. How does God the Son love you? Well, Paul declares in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 5.5 tells us about the work of the Holy Spirit. We are not put to shame, for hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Friends, cheer up. You are more loved than you dare imagine. Paul says it this way, we are saved by grace, God's goodness, his kindness, not because of the things that we have done, not because of our good works, as if our good works had ever appeased the holy and perfect God who created Orion, who created the galaxies. <laughs> and yet, amazingly, by faith in him, you and I are raised and seated next to Christ. We have union with Christ. So, cheer up, we're worse than we think. <laughs> That's clear from Ephesians 1 through 3, but cheer up, we're more loved than we dare imagine. So now what? Now what? What's the point of life? Let me finish up. I look at verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That is, believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Not by your good works, but by God's kindness we are saved through faith alone. And Paul wants you to know that this is not your own doing. You do not save yourself. It is a gift from God. Not a result of our works, so that no one may boast, right? If we could earn our salvation by our good works, we'd have reason to boast, but we can't. So God gives us his grace. And then I love verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So now what? If that's the message of the gospel, what am I supposed to do? Am I just like hanging out in this life, waiting to die to get into heaven? Is that the point of human life? Now what? What's the point of life? You know, are we all supposed to go be pastors? Are we all supposed to be missionaries? You know, we're all supposed to just, you know, move out and you preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. Well, if you want to do that, I would love to send you out there. I'd financially support you if you want to go be a missionary somewhere. But I don't think that's actually what we're supposed to do. I think what Paul says, the now what, is that you and I are called to a life of good works. Not to earn our salvation, but because of our salvation. We have a life that has been laid out, planned beforehand. Your life your life has been planned beforehand so that you can do what God has designed you to do. We mess with our children when we tell them you can be whatever you want to be. You know, you know why that messes up your kids? Because I'm not going to play in the WNBA. I'm 37. I'm too short, probably. The message we need to tell our kids is not you can be whatever you want to be. It's what does God want you to do? What does God want you to do? I mean, if you make your kid build their own existential, you know, reality, why do I exist? It's because it's going to be something that I muster. I mean, talk about a crippling thing. Well, what if they don't get to do what they want to do? What if they're like 99.9% of the world just doing a job? Is that really the point? I mean, that's great if you get to do what you want, but for most of us, 
What's more important, I would suggest to you, is doing what God has called you to do. Walking in the good path that he has set for you. Loving people. You know, loving God, loving others. You know, the kind of whole point of life. You know, Jean Valjean, you know, doesn't know what to do. It's beautiful. I won't sing anymore, I promise. Jean Valjean receives this grace. And if you you read the story, what happens is Jean Valjean gives his life to Christ. Uh, He says, I have a soul. And so he becomes a Christian, if you can believe it. And he doesn't become a pastor. He doesn't become a parson. He doesn't become a missionary. Instead, you know what Jean Valjean does? He moves into a small town and he uses the silver that he was given and he starts a factory and he employs the poor in the community. And in that factory, he pays them a good wage and shows them respect. And then he gives to his city financially so they have better amenities. And then he even in the book, this is from the actual book itself, he builds a home for the old and infirm workers. And then of course, if you know the story of Les Mis, this good and righteous man saved by grace, eventually takes in a woman of the night who is herself broken by this world. And he takes her into his home. And then when she dies, he does what? He adopts her daughter, Cosette. And he raises this orphan girl as his own. You see, friends, what I love about that story, (laughs) it's a picture of Ephesians 1 through 10. You don't have to go be a missionary. You don't have to be a pastor to do what God has called you to do. What does our great elder Dave Fennell always call us to do? Invest in our spheres of influence. Who has God put in your life? Who is your family? Who are your neighbors? Who are the non-Christians that you know that need to hear this message? That's the greatest calling on your life. The greatest calling on your life, friend, is your relationship with God and the lives of people you invest in. That's it. Everything else, it's all going to go away. Like your first iPhone you ever got. Lord knows where that thing is now. (laughs) And yet, and yet we wanted it so bad. Friends, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message of the gospel. Father, we thank you that you loved us even while we were sinners. Lord, we praise you that Christ died for us even while we were stuck in sin. Lord, I pray that if anyone does not know this message, today would be the day of salvation. Lord, that they would pray, Father, forgive me. Lord, I repent of the things that I have done. I confess my sins. I ask for your forgiveness. Lord Jesus Christ, you died in my place. And by your blood, your precious blood, I am forgiven. Holy Spirit, would you indwell my heart? Would I turn away from the ways of this world? And would I follow Jesus, bearing my own cross every day of my life? Father, I pray for the hard hearts in the room that your Holy Spirit and your grace would break in and give them a heart of flesh. 
Father, for those of us who have forgotten how merciful you are, would we remember that your grace is meant to lead us to repentance? So, Lord, give us a picture of your mercy. Lord, empower us to forgive those who have wronged us. Lord, would you give us the power to forgive ourselves? To trust that when Jesus said, it is finished, that it really was finished. Father, would you open up the eyes of our hearts? Holy Spirit, we need you to do that. And Father, this morning we lift to you those who aren't able to be here, those who are at home, those who are discouraged. Lord, we pray for Shirley Botham, Marilyn Feeney, Paul Deller, Randy Templeton, Lynn Toombs, and Phoebe Allstad. Father, we pray for another church in our valley. Lord, we thank you for the witness and the proclamation of the gospel that comes out of Rogue Valley Fellowship. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give a fresh anointing on Pastor Kinner. Lord, that they would be unified for the sake of the gospel, that they would be encouraged. And Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in and through that congregation. Lord, we praise you that we are saved by grace and grace alone. Father, would that be the cry of our heart this week? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.